everybody. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan, builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this episode of Real Talk. Uh, on today's show, we have uh, Dr. Calvin Weisner. A, uh, he, uh, his introduction is as follows. He uh, has his PhD, History of Political Thought, is Cornwall Alliance's president and founder, honored in 2014 by the Heritage Foundation with the Outstanding Spokesperson on Faith, Science, and Stewardship Award. He is a former associate professor of historical Theology and Social Ethics at Knox Theological Seminary, and of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College, and author of Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population, Resources, and the Future, Where Garden Meets Wilderness, Evangelical Entry into the Environmental Debate, and Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment, among other books. Um, So welcome to the program, Dr. Beisner. Thank you very much, Lucas. It's, it's a privilege to be with you. Good stuff. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. And on today's show, we'll be talking about the topic of climate change and also, of course, wrapped in that mm-hmm. um, environmentalism, conservation, and and basically the, the takeaway is going to be what can we as Christians make of climate change? How much should we care about it? How big mm-hmm. of a problem is it? And, uh, and what can we do about it as Christians and, and as a church, perhaps? So first off, I'd just like to um, talk a bit about the Cornwall Alliance. That's the organization you had founded. Yeah. Can you tell uh, yeah, our listeners what it is, why it exists, and some of the, uh, the work you guys do there? Yeah, sure. The Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation uh, is a, a think tank, really. And uh, a very brief and kind of humorous way of putting it is that uh, our work is to try to defend the planet from the people who are trying to defend the planet. <laughs> to put it a little more uh, more soberly, uh, our mission is to educate the public and policymakers on three things simultaneously and intertwined with each other. Biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the very poor around the world, and the gospel of Christ together with the uh, biblical worldview, theology, and ethics that come with it. By biblical earth stewardship, we mean the fulfillment of the mandate given to humanity in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything in it. Um, And this should reflect God's own dominion shown in the first 27 verses of Genesis, where God starts with nothing and gets everything. He brings light out of darkness, order out of chaos, life out of non-life, and great variety of life and tells every variety of life to be fruitful and multiply and fill its niche in the created order. Um, what this really looks like uh, in, in perhaps more, more direct terms would be men and women created in God's image, working lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors so that we're addressing the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Uh, the second area, of course, is uh, economic development for the very poor around the world. Uh, and we find that uh, there are two things that are indispensable to that. Uh, One is a set of five different social institutions, private property rights, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law. The other is access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy, because energy, as we all learned back in our middle school science class, is the capacity to do work. And work is what we do to make food, clothing, shelter, and everything else that we need for our lives. So the more energy you can apply, the more work you can get done, the more work you can get done, the more of all the things that we need, we can have. So uh, that that is a, a crucial, really indispensable uh, condition of lifting and keeping whole societies out of poverty. And unfortunately, most of the environmental movement is at odds with us on 
both those five social institutions and the importance of abundant, affordable, reliable uh, energy. And frankly, also on the definition of what would be good earth stewardship. Uh, whereas we think that it is important that human beings uh, subdue and rule the earth, most of the environmental movement thinks that our primary uh, duty is to minimize our in influence, our, our effect on the natural world. Uh, so from those differences stem all kinds of interesting contrasts and, and arguments. Uh, and then finally, we have the gospel of Christ. Uh, this is the most important of all things, because frankly, uh, you know, the, the duration of a nation or even of a civilization, let alone of an individual human uh, earthly lifespan, is an infinitesimally small drop in the infinitely great ocean of eternity. And uh, the eternal destiny of individual souls is of tremendous importance. And in addition to that, of course, as people come to know Christ, uh, they begin to learn the biblical worldview, biblical theology, biblical ethics. They begin to understand God's creation the way he intended it to be understood and use it the way he intended it to be used. And this all comes as we are reconciled, we sinful creatures, to the holy God by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his saving work on, a, on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So we wrap all three of those things together, and that's our work. Okay, that's, uh, yes, that's, that's a very detailed description. That's, uh, that's a lot of play there. All right, so there's, there's probably a few different avenues we could take this discussion. But actually, I think I just want to pursue one mm -hmm. um, point before we get to the topic of climate change. Can you just tell me a bit about uh, the history of, of the Cornwall Alliance? Um, and I know as a think tank, sure. Um, yeah, what uh, have you been able to accomplish, I suppose, like papers you've written or policies you've influenced or put out, uh, anything along those lines? Yeah, well, let's see. Um, <laughs> that could be a lead to a very long answer, but I'll try to keep it quite short. Uh, we were founded in 2005, uh, initially in a very informal way, just kind of a, a network of, at that time, about uh, 30 or 40 scholars. It has now grown to just under 70. Um, we have, over the years, produced uh, literally thousands of articles uh, and uh, a fairly large number of major papers. Uh, all of these are available on our website at cornwallalliance.org. We've also produced a number of different videos uh, that are available on YouTube. And we have a, a Facebook page uh, on which we used to do a live stream program uh, on a weekly basis. Those live streams are still available on Facebook as well as on YouTube. Uh, now we do a podcast called Created to Rain. Uh, that comes out uh, a couple times a week um, to uh, uh, a long program once a week, typically, and a couple of shorter programs each week. And uh, then we also, uh, uh, we've placed articles in newspapers, magazines, online sites, and whatnot uh, many, many times over the years. We provide speakers for churches, schools, colleges, uh, conferences. We've provided expert witnesses for uh, legislative committees at the state and national levels, uh, the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, so I, I guess that's kind of what we do. Um, uh, in terms of our, our influence, I, I guess my favorite thing is to refer to a study commissioned by the New America Foundation, which is one of George Soros's organizations. Uh, he is by no means an ally to us, uh, and neither are his foundations. Uh, but the New America Foundation in 2014, late 2014, uh, commissioned a couple of PhD sociologists from, I think they were both from Harvard, uh, to try to answer the question, why do evangelicals uh, continue to be the most skeptical demographic in America about the idea of catastrophic man-made global warming. 
despite the fact that we, that would be uh, Soros's various organizations like uh, the uh, uh, the New America Foundation or the Open Societies Foundation and a variety of other uh, major liberal foundations, Rockefeller Brothers and uh, Hewlett Foundation and Tides and so on. Uh, despite the fact that these various liberal foundations had spent literally scores of millions, indeed even over $100 million, uh, trying to uh, persuade evangelicals to jump on the climate change bandwagon, why did they remain the most uh, skeptical of any demographic in America? The result was about a 50-page uh, long study uh, paper uh, in which the authors basically concluded that the reason for that failure was the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. So uh, we kind of take that, uh, the, the, to them, that's blame. To us, it's a badge yeah. of honor. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're angering the right people, that's that's a good sign right there. Good <laughs> stuff. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, climate change. That's what this episode is about. We're going to attempt to tackle it. I suppose we should mm -hmm. start with... Um, defining it that would be a that would be a good way to start with it can you give us a definition of climate change and maybe walk us through the history of uh, global warming into climate change into the climate crisis sure. is language we see often today sure well you know the the obvious definition of climate change would simply be that uh, it's not always the same temperature uh, we have, uh, you know, our climate changes from nighttime low to daytime high. It changes from uh, season to season around the year. Uh, it changes uh, over cycles running anywhere from about uh, oh, 11 or 12 years, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, to uh, about a 30 to 60 year cycle that would be driven by several different ocean cycles, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the Atlantic uh, Multi-Decadal Oscillation, uh, the Atlantic Oscillation, uh, and a couple of others. Uh, and then there are some much, much longer cycles if you buy into old earth geology, uh, or at least cycles that uh, look like that. Anyway, the Milankovitch cycles measured in terms of hundreds of thousands of years, um, depending, again, on what geological perspective you hold. And with the Cornwall Alliance, uh, we have people who are young earth uh, endorsers and old earth endorsers, uh, although all of us uh, acknowledge that God created and that specifically he created Adam and Eve uh, directly. Uh, but, um, you know, geologically, we've had uh, at least one major ice age in the past uh, in which uh, most of the Northern Hemisphere was covered by a sheet of ice, uh, the, the continents by a sheet of ice running anywhere from about uh, a few hundred feet to three or four miles thick uh, down to a latitude uh, around about San Francisco, St. Louis, uh, that area. Um, and then we've also had uh, much warmer periods uh, or period um, uh, such as, for example, the Holocene climate optimum, which most geologists put at about 8,000 to 5,000 BC, when global average temperature was significantly warmer than it is today, though even that was still in the midst of what is known as an ice age. As long as we have um, ice sheets covering uh, a major part of either the northern or the southern polar regions, uh, it's technically called an ice age. So we're in an ice age now, though most people don't realize it. And that's because Greenland is covered by ice for the most part, and Antarctica is covered by ice for the most part. But we're in what's called an interglacial period, uh, period between glacial coverage of the hemisphere. Uh, and that's a little bit warmer. So we've seen uh, warming and cooling on cyclical bases. We've seen, for instance, over the last uh, 2,500 years, we've seen the Minoan warm period, the Roman warm period, the, uh, the medieval warm period, which ran from about 950 to 1250. We've also seen the Little Ice Age running from about 1350 to 1850. All of these things happened entirely naturally. Uh, there were no SUVs running around. 
burning <laughs> burning coal. Uh, I mean, pardon me, burning uh, gas or diesel, and uh, so human influence had essentially nothing to do with those. So most of us hear climate change, and we we think, okay, well, that's a natural thing, right? Very interesting thing happened back in 1992 at the foundation of the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is uh, a treaty entered into by most of the nations of the world. They defined climate change for the purposes of their usage as climate change driven primarily by human activities especially the emission of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So nowadays, when people hear the phrase climate change, they tend to think of man-made climate change. And then it's also become common to think not just of man-made climate change, but of dangerous to catastrophic climate change. Indeed, climate change that is an existential threat, as our President Biden has put it, and as various others have said as well. Um, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which releases a major uh, uh, scientific assessment report about every five to seven years, it's just done its sixth one, was was finished this spring, um, uh, is uh, is uh, it operates under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change as well as under the World uh, Meteorological Organization, and the IPCC basically uses its definition, the the uh, FCCC's definition of climate change, um, and it's you know, there's a lot of good scientific work that's done by the IPCC, but it is specifically inter an intergovernmental panel on climate change. It is not primarily a scientific body, although it tries to present itself as if it were. The, the assessment reports are mostly pretty solid scientific work. You'll never find terms like dangerous, crisis, uh, existential threat, uh, catastrophe in its assessment reports. Even the summaries for policymakers, which are you know, the assessment reports run thousands of pages in each of their three large volumes that come out every five to seven years. The summary for policymakers for each of those tends to run about 30 or 40 pages. Even in the summaries for policymakers, you don't find that kind of language. But the summaries for policymakers are put together primarily by government bureaucratic appointees, not by scientists. And they tend to push a more alarmist mentality than the assessment reports themselves. And then you have the PR reports, the, the press reports and the statements for the public that come out from the UN and from the IPCC. And that's where you begin to encounter language of crisis, danger, catastrophe, existential threat. That gets picked up by environmental activist organizations and by the mainstream media and by politicians, uh, because that's the kind of language that can get people on board for spending trillions of dollars to solve a problem. Uh, whereas if you, if you speak in very measured, moderate scientific terms, you won't get that kind of support. So it's a highly politicized thing. At any rate, climate change. <laughs> for all of Earth's history until uh, about perhaps 70 years ago, 60 years ago, it was uh, exclusively natural. Now, human activity, I think, does contribute somewhat to it, uh, but it is, not, uh, it is not catastrophic. And uh, actually, I think that the benefits are likely to outweigh the harms for a variety of different mm -hmm. reasons. Okay. So... It seems to me, just being a casual observer of this this issue, that there's very much uh, a worldview at play here when it comes to governments discussing mm -hmm. climate change and, and pushing policies related to that. Uh, and you mentioned that a little bit with the government bureaucrats inputting a bit of their own language and pushing a bit of an agenda that way. Um, do you think that's mm -hmm. why many Christians are skeptical of climate change? So that'd be part one of the question. And then part two is because of that, okay. do you think 
Christians generally, uh, and maybe even this is more of a Reformed audience that I guess you're speaking to here, but let's say Christians in general discount this issue and write it off because it's being pushed by, um, yeah, for lack of a better term, probably people with a global mindset, globalists, as, as they're sometimes called. Uh, <laughs> great question. Great question. Um, at the worldview level, there are some really fascinating things to, to think through. Uh, most environmentalism is rooted in either a secular humanist, naturalist, uh, materialist worldview. The universe is all there is, and it got to be the way it did by blind chance over time. Uh, there was no uh, God who designed it, no God who created it, no God who sustains and directs it. Uh, and uh, we, we owe everything that we see to blind chance over time. Um, the other worldview that dominates much of the environmental movement is either a pantheistic or panentheistic or animistic worldview. In pantheism, uh, the universe is God. Uh, God is the universe. All right. Uh, a panentheism, God is to the universe as the soul is to the body. It, uh, you know, God, it, uh, not a personal God, inhabits, uh, suffuses the universe. In animism, lots of spirits or gods inhabit rocks, trees, rivers, mountains, etc. Um, but uh, in in this too, uh, we lose, as we do in in materialism, what the Bible speaks of as the distinction between the creator and the creature. Paul warns us in Romans one what happens when you do that uh, when you when you deny the creator, you begin to worship the creature instead of the creator. And that's exactly what we see happening in much of the environmental movement. Uh, you, you elevate the earth to the supreme uh, concern. And uh, even as the, the fairly liberal theologian Paul Tillich uh, recognized, whatever is supreme in your life is your God, whether it's money, sex, power, or you know the river down, <laughs> down in the valley. And so... Uh, this this sort of uh, worldview, whether it's materialist or pantheist, uh, denies the creator-creature distinction. Paul also tells us what happens when you do that. God gives you over to a reprobate mind, professing yourself to be wise. You become a fool, and you fall into all kinds of different errors, uh, both intellectual and moral. And uh, uh, I, I think that's uh, a large part of why uh, it just seems to me that there is a great deal of really uh, shocking folly in much environmental thought. Um, from this worldview stems a sort of a picture of the natural world, a narrative, we could say, that the natural world is a very, very fragile, uh, delicate place because it came about by blind chance over time, wasn't designed by, uh, in an intelligent way, and it, it isn't sustained by a faithful creator. Uh, but it's very nurturing. And so if we would just learn to get along well with nature, if we would live in harmony with nature, uh, everything would be great. We would all have what we need, and, and the earth would be clean, and we would all be healthy and live long, wonderful lives. The problem with that is that history tell, tells us a very different story. What most environmentalists mean by harmony with nature is something equivalent to, say, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, or perhaps the subsistence agricultural lifestyle, where everybody's involved in farming and you grow enough food basically for yourself and to do a little bit of trading with other people to get kinds of food that you don't happen to grow. Uh, we know historically what you get from those. You get average human life expectancy at birth of about 27 to 28 years. You get average uh, infant and child mortality rate of about 50%. Uh, you have all kinds of sickness. Uh, there are just all kinds of problems. Uh, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, as Thomas Hobbes put it. Um, from the biblical worldview, where we recognize that, uh, one, there is a creator who's distinct from his creation, uh, we see that an, an infinitely wise God designed, an infinitely powerful God created, 
an infinitely uh, faithful God sustains his creation. And that leads to a very different view of his creation. We also see that God, uh, God designed a hierarchy into creation of non-living things, moving upward to living things, moving upward to the highest living order, which is human beings, alone created in the image of God. And God gives human beings this mandate, as I cited earlier from Genesis 1.28, to subdue and rule the earth. And we're to do that uh, in a way that reflects his own image, because we are his image. Uh, and uh, yet also God uh, created us with the capacity freely to choose to sin. And we did sin. And he visited that sin with judgment uh, that included a curse on the earth so that uh, it it does not respond to our subduing and ruling as wonderfully as it otherwise would. And so then we wind up with hunger, starvation, low life expectancy, and the like, uh, as, I, as I just rehearsed. And so from this biblical perspective, rather than seeing nature as delicate but nurturing, we see it as robust, very tough, very resilient, self-correcting, but dangerous unless subdued, unless mastered. And that means that instead of trying to minimize our impact on the world, we, we don't maximize it, but we optimize it. We seek, as I said earlier, to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth. Uh, for human well-being as well as for the glory of God. Um, one, of the, one of the consequences of this contrast is that so much of the environmental movement opposes um, the, the five social institutions of private property rights, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law, and opposes our use of abundant, affordable, reliable energy precisely because those things lead to the greatest economic development, which also leads to a significant uh, impact on the natural world, which they think we should minimize instead. Uh, whereas I think the biblical worldview would support those five social institutions that access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy, precisely because subduing and ruling the world is very important. One of the things that we see as people learn to subdue and rule the, rule the world is that our vulnerability to all kinds of natural problems diminishes over time. So, for example, and this is a very important one in terms of the, the topic of climate change, uh, people worry that man-made, you know, man, human-influenced human uh, climate change is going to bring about more frequent and more severe extreme weather events like hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts, heat waves, cold snaps, and so on. And that therefore, uh, people will suffer a great deal more than we otherwise would. Well, there's a, again, we, we look at history and we see a, a very important contradiction to that expectation. Human mortality, that is the rate of human deaths attributable to extreme weather events dropped by more than 98% from 1920 to 2020. There was no decline in the frequency or the intensity of severe weather events. So why did mortality drop so much? It dropped so much because people became, became wealthy and with their wealth, they were able to build homes and office buildings and factories and infrastructure that defended them, that protected them from severe weather events. Um, so consequently, uh, and, and by the way, some of this decline in mortality happened right during the time that supposedly human-induced global warming was happening, namely from about 1960 to the present, uh, which means that 
uh, our economic development outweighs whatever hazards come from climate change itself. The way I put it often is poverty is a far greater risk than anything related to climate. If you have income equivalent to the bottom 10th of, of Americans, you can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest. If you're living on the equivalent of a dollar or two a day, you can't thrive in the greatest tropical paradise. And so overcoming poverty is absolutely essential to human well-being and to our mastering the natural world, including its climate. Would, yeah, yeah, I'll stop no, there. That's, that's all good stuff. Would it be fair to say that um, people who take a materialist view or a pantheistic view, um, they would? it's worth sacrificing almost anything mm -hmm. to achieve their goals in relation to climate because they hold the earth in such high esteem and they hold the natural world in such high esteem. Do you think that's why? Yes. Yeah, I, I think so. And I'm not sure that many of them have actually thought that through to any depth, but when you run out of other impossible explanations and you do that fairly quickly, uh, you're, you're kind of stuck with what, sits right at the root of their thinking, of, of their values. And it really is the exaltation of, of nature, the creature, to the position of the creator yeah. instead. Yeah, a reversal of that, uh, that creation mandate for sure. Mm -hmm. hmm. So yeah. uh, tacking on a bit to the second part of that question I asked you, I guess to be a little more straightforward with that, should, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, should we not be terribly concerned about climate change and should the church not worry about it because there are far bigger problems such as, as poverty and whatnot? Or is it a problem to consider amongst other ones and we should still be doing something about it, but not as much as the world seems to push it? I think there are going to be some problems that come with human-induced climate change and that we should be aware of those and we should be prepared to try to deal with those either by mitigation, that is uh, reducing them, preventing them, or by adaptation, that is uh, allowing them to occur but adapting so that we aren't harmed by them or that we're harmed less than otherwise we would be. And actually, as in most areas of life, the, the real response is likely to be a, a mixture of those two. Um, but let me back up just a little bit. Um, when so many people think of climate change as, as catastrophic, uh, an existential threat, First of all, they are going way beyond anything that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is usually looked at as the world's most authoritative scientific body on these things, though, as I said, it's, it's really not all that scientific. The, the government appointees dominate what comes out. Um, the IPCC just never gets to those sorts of, of perceptions about climate change. Um, but we, we can expect that as temperatures warm in some places, there will be some problems as sea level rises, there will be some problems. Now, sea levels been rising ever since the end of the ice age, uh, some, uh, you know, by standard geology about 18,000 years ago, uh, there's been no evidence that there's an increase in the rate of sea level rise. Uh, during the period of allegedly human-induced climate change. And that rate is averaging, oh, about one and a half to two millimeters per year, uh, seven or eight, perhaps as much as 10 inches per century. Uh, and humankind has adapted to that quite successfully many, many times in the past. And uh, the, the Dutch have been doing a particularly good job of that for hundreds of years. Uh, and there's no reason why we can't adapt uh, now. Um, we, we don't need to worry, I think, about adapting to something that is catastrophic. The best scientific evidence says that the warming from uh, human emissions of carbon dioxide and other so-called greenhouse gases uh, will be on the order of 
uh, oh, about half a degree to two degrees Celsius uh, per doubling of CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere. Uh, we are roughly halfway to doubling what it was before the Industrial Revolution. We'll probably reach a full doubling late this century. Uh, and um, so far, we've risen by about 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius. But also, the best science, including that used by the IPCC, tells us that the warming is primarily toward the poles, primarily in winter, primarily at night, not toward the equator in summer in the daytime. In other words, we raise low temperatures while having little or no impact on high temperatures. And that's really, really good news because what it means is that you can farm to higher and higher latitudes. You can farm to higher and higher altitudes. You can, you can uh, plant earlier in the year. You can harvest later in the year because the, first, uh, the, the, uh, the last freeze and the first freeze happen uh, earlier in the summer, later in the, uh, earlier in the spring, pardon me, and later in the fall. So all of that is very, very good news. Um, and, and so I think, frankly, that the benefits of, of this sort of warming are going to outweigh the risks. There will be some problems here and there, but I think it will be much less expensive to adapt to those than to try to control them. Uh, to illustrate, um, it's a whole lot easier for us to control the temperature inside a building than it is to control the temperature of the whole hemisphere or, or planet, right? And so uh, building a building and, uh, and acclimatizing it, right, controlling its temperature inside is adaptation, whereas trying to control the outside temperature is mitigation. Uh, it's the same reason you put on a sweater uh, rather than, uh, than raising your thermostat even higher and spending much more on your, your heating bill. So we can adapt, and I think we will adapt very successfully, as we have done many times in the past throughout human history. We're much better at it now than we were before, and I think that we will do just fine. Okay. Well, that's good news for us up here in Canada, that uh, we got a longer growing season. Why it not? is. It does. It is. You've already benefited yeah. from it. Although yes. I will say, as someone who uh, used to make a hockey rink every year, it does hurt us in that regard. So it's tougher that way. Yeah, well, there are trade-offs in life. Yeah, and uh, which do you, which which is better for human yes. well-being, hockey rinks or longer growing seasons and more arable land, so that food becomes less expensive? Yeah, well, you make a good you make a good case there. That's fair. We can always acclimatize and and uh, build more inside indoor rinks. <laughs> that's fine too. Okay, so that's. You can build rinks. That's can. right. Yeah. Okay, so we're, I think we're getting a good handle on what climate change is and how we can view it. Um, and yeah, it is a problem, but we will mm -hmm. adapt. And also, I think we need to also consider there's just a tremendous amount of incentive for industry to come up with new innovative policies with the amount of subsidies and money that's being thrown at uh, this problem as yes. well. So that's that does give us, I think, hope for the future as well. But yeah. I, I want to come back to a bit uh, the world yeah, it it also if I if I can if I can just uh, throw this in there in response to that those incentives, uh, particularly because of government subsidies, can also uh, can also really distort what decisions would otherwise be made. Uh, T Boone Pickens, <laughs> kind of a, an iconic character in American uh, energy industry. Uh, made billions of dollars in the oil industry. And then he went into wind and he, uh, he installed hundreds of wind turbines, thousands of wind turbines around Texas. Um, and people saw that as a harbinger of things to come. I mean, after all, if a great uh, industrial uh, businessman like T. Boone Pickens would bet on wind, obviously wind is going to win, right? But Pickens said there is absolutely no reason to build wind turbines except for the subsidies. 
Without the subsidies, turbines would be a losing proposition. And that's essentially correct. Uh, and that continues to be correct, even though he said that about 15 years ago and the building of turbines has improved over time. Uh, even a recent study that I read, can't remember now which one it was, concluded that basically the, the, uh, the end value of wind turbines is barely above zero in terms of the amount of power generated for the resources uh, invested uh, into that. And so when governments subsidize, whether by direct cash handouts or by tax incentives, certain activities, you'll get more of those activities than would be justified on a pure cost-benefit basis. And so we want to be careful about that. I, you know, At the Cornwall Alliance, we think, frankly, government shouldn't play any role in deciding winners and losers about energy technologies. There should be no subsidies or tax incentives. There should be a level playing field. And if there were, we would find that uh, nuclear, uh, hydro, large-scale hydro, and fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, would far outstrip wind and solar, not just now, but for decades to come, probably generations to come, for a variety of different reasons uh, rooted in basic physics and in basic engineering. Uh, uh, on, a, on a level playing field, those will simply never be able to compete at providing abundant, affordable, reliable, scalable, instant on demand, 24 7, predict, you know, 24 7, 365, predictable uh, basis with, uh, with fossil well, fuels. Yeah, I mean, Europe's seeing that right now. Are they not? I mean, they're, they're running into a, a giant sure is. with their energy and, and where they're getting it from. Um, and that problem is not because Putin invaded Ukraine. It's because for a period of more than 20 years, European leaders have made disastrous decisions about their energy infrastructures. And so when Putin invaded Ukraine, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. But most of the load was already there. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like common sense. Like if it's a, a dark night and there's no wind uh, and you put a bunch of your eggs in that basket, where are you going to power your, your stuff from? <laughs> it's a problem. But it's... Yeah. Uh, on the right. free market issue right. there, that's actually a, an interesting uh, point you raise. So um, I'm, I've yeah. listened to a number of uh, podcasts featuring uh, Bjorn Lomberg. Um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with, with his name, given uh, your area of expertise. Mm -hmm. uh, what... Yes, he and I testified before a Senate committee together. Perfect. So I, have you met him in the flesh, actually? Yeah. Ha yeah, cool. Oh, yeah. Okay, very yeah. neat. Well, okay, so I wanted you to, to comment on some yes. of his ideas then and to um, – because he's, he's a little more uh, interventionist, I suppose, on the Cornwall <laughs> Alliance in terms of uh, picking winners and losers as you described it. He he references yeah. studies where he says there will be um, a, a, a distinct lack of um, funding for uh, innovation if just left to the free market because – of the cost that is required to, and, and also the time, which goes along with the cost, required to come up with solutions to improve our energy uh, solutions globally. Uh, wh what do you yeah. think of that? Do you think uh, he's onto something there, or do you think we should just leave it to the free market and get rid of subsidies completely? Well, you know, Bjorn uh, is a brilliant economist and statistician. Um, his book, The Skeptical Environmentalist, was brilliant. Uh, his book, False Alarm, is brilliant. Uh, he's done a lot of really, really outstanding stuff. Um, and uh, he and I would think very, very similarly on many, many different things. Um, in terms of his willingness to say, yeah, governments need to go ahead and, and uh, direct some capital into particular uh, technological uh, development, um, and I would be far less prone to embrace that kind of thinking. I, well, <laughs> partly I think Bjorn is buying, uh, he's, he's buying acceptance in the global conversation by conceding some things that as a, as a, an economic purist, he might not concede. Um, and you know, that's okay. I, I, I think we need to have people all along the spectrum in, in arguing these things. Uh, 
but partly I, too, I, I think Bjorn is just uh, ignoring the fact that bureaucrats tend to be, well, and elected politicians tend to be far less skillful at, uh, at, at picking the most, uh, the, the, the best return on investment of dollars than private individuals. And there are a number of different incentive reasons why that is so. Uh, the most important of them is that uh, elected officials have to be elected, <laughs> and they're always looking forward to the next uh, next election. And so, when they make the decision, where should I invest a uh, hundred thousand dollars, or a million dollars, or a billion dollars? They always have in their minds uh, what's going to win me the most votes in my electorate, not what's going to bring the best return on investment. They also, of course, are heavily influenced by uh, lobbyists from various different industries. And uh, large corporations tend to lobby in favor of uh, large regulations on industrial activity because they can afford to meet those regulations, but their upstart small competitors cannot afford it. So they are protecting themselves by doing this. Um, there are variety, uh, various other incentives that hobble the capacity of politicians and bureaucrats to make as wise choices as do private individuals. And of course, also, you know, the, the politicians and bureaucrats, they're never spending their own money on these projects, right? They're always spending other people's money. Well, I, I think if there's anything that we've learned uh, from human history it's that people tend to be a whole lot quicker to spend and a whole lot slower to carefully analyze the return on the spending, the, the benefit over the cost, when they're dealing with other people's money than when they're dealing with their own. So, you know, I, uh, I, I think, and pretty much all of us at the Cornwall Alliance think that the level playing field, the, you know, Government just leaves leaves the decision about where capital goes in terms of technological uh, investment and so on, uh, up to the market, uh, meaning up to free individuals. And then, of course, as specifically a, a Christian economist, I also look at the Eighth Commandment, which does not say you shall not steal unless you are the government. And in order for the government to invest money in a technology, it has to take that money from some people to whom it belongs and hand it over to other people to whom it doesn't belong. And that's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Uh, it is not part of what God mandates governments to do, which is to enforce justice by punishing those who do evil and praising those who do good. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Interesting. Um, well, there was one other uh, point I wanted to hit for sure, at least, which was getting back to some of the worldview uh, issues we talked about earlier, and that's the one of conservation. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of this more in uh, in the hunting and, and fishing community, uh, outdoorsy people, uh, this idea of conservation. And it's, it's pretty widely accepted, mm -hmm. uh, especially with the way uh, North America manages their game and, and their wildlife with a lot of the money uh, from those coming back into the system. And um, yeah, people want to make sure the resources are uh, taken good care mm -hmm. of. Is, um, is that, what, what part of the history, I suppose, of this environmental movement did that come out of? And was it the case that there was more of a conservation mindset in let's say early, early yeah. 20th century America, and then it started to go astray? Or is this a, just a completely different stream yeah. and not missing the boat on that one? Yeah, uh, chronologically, it's the environmental movement that came out of conservationism rather than conservationism that came out of environmentalism. The very term environmentalism uh, was not coined until the 1970s. And environmentalism was a sort of a, a, a permutation of preservationism, which was a movement that came out of conservationism in the 1950s and 1960s. The preservationist movement wanted to keep things the way they were. Um, 
a lot of environmentalists, those who later identified as environmentalists, saw that as not good enough. Um, they wanted not only to resolve all sorts of real problems with pollution, uh, smog and, and uh, chemical runoff in lakes and streams and things like that. They wanted to, uh, to deindustrialize a lot of places, to return to nature uh, pristine as it was untouched by human hands. So the preservationist movement uh, didn't go far enough, and so it yielded to the environmentalist movement. But the preservationists came out of the conservationists, and the conservationists said, uh, had the basic idea, uh, what we want to do is to ensure that the world that we inherit from the generation before us, we can pass on in as good or better condition to the generation that comes after us. And that doesn't necessarily mean keeping it exactly as it is the way we find it. Um, we want to, I mean, th this is a truly conservative perspective on things. Uh, and this is why most of the early conservative movement or conservation movement rather uh, was in conservative political, cultural, uh, philosophical circles rather than in uh, more liberal, uh, uh, in, in terms of the American usage of that term, liberal, uh, not, the, not the English or Canadian usage, uh, and, and uh, sort of leftist uh, thinking. So um, the, the, the conservationist movement, I think, has much deeper roots than the environmentalist movement, uh, which has kind of cut itself off from those roots, and uh, a better claim to, uh, to being rooted in a biblical worldview that really does say, uh, by subduing and ruling nature, we want to hand it on to the next generation in better condition than we found it, uh, which again is why at the Cornwall Alliance, we we say our aim is to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbor. Um, I should mention, by the way, I haven't done this yet. And as the president of the Cornwall Alliance, part of my job, uh, people can find us online at cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. But also our, our podcast is called Created to Reign. And uh, that's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and most of the other major uh, uh, podcast platforms. We'll be sure to link to all that stuff so our listeners can check you out if, if they want to learn more. Uh, I think uh, another, just coming to mind now, another mm -hmm. topic I want to hit is uh, just this, the, the impact of these green or climate policies on day-to-day -day life. Uh, I mean, we really see it here. Well, we saw it for sure mm -hmm. in Holland with the Dutch farmer protest. So maybe I can get you to speak on that. But also our prime minister is, yes. is very yeah. Um, yeah, captured uh, by this movement. And he is, is in, on full board, uh, yeah, fully on board with, with these green policies, um, which we have yeah. the carbon tax here in Canada. Yeah. And that continues to go up year after year and makes uh, filling up your, your truck very expensive. So I'm just wondering if you can comment on Indeed. kind of the worldview at play if the, if is it a goal, do you think, of people committed to the climate change and green agenda of just pricing uh, these these way, uh, what, what would you call it, these CO2 heavy uh, activities out and then changing our, our way of life? Yeah, I think that is a goal, a widely shared goal. Um, for many of them, that's a goal without recognition of the consequences. Um, uh, too many people just simply don't understand uh, where energy comes from, how we make it. Um, we don't, of course, create it from nothing, but you start with raw materials and you have to uh, refine those in some really pretty incredible ways to get the extremely uh, high-density, intense, uh, super-pure energy we need, whether for electricity or for uh, motor fuel. Um, and then, of course, also the, the 
literally some 10,000 different byproducts of petroleum, for instance, and hundreds of byproducts of coal and natural gas. We, natural gas is a primary component of of uh, uh, our our fertilizers that enhance crop yields around the world and therefore make people uh, better able to afford food. Um, uh, the vast majority of us simply have no comprehension of that sort of thing. I, this is a good opportunity to recommend an amazing book by uh, 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 Václav Smil, Václav, V-A-C-L-A-V, Smil, S-M-I-L, called How the World Really Works. Um, I think it would be really good for, <laughs> for pretty much all of us to get a better kind of handle on that. Um, so uh, I, I think a lot of people who favor the policies that are going to greatly reduce our use of fossil fuels, which currently provide a, right about 85% of all the energy consumed in the world, um, and then uh, those are followed by nuclear and uh, large-scale hydro, and then by wood and dung and other uh, biofuels, uh, primitive biofuels. And then way down the list, we get wind and solar and other so-called green energy sources. Um, but what these people don't realize is that the switch from these abundant, reliable, affordable, very high-density fuel sources to diffuse uh, intermittent low-density fuel source or energy sources like wind and solar necessarily pushes up the cost of the end product, which is the usable electricity or the usable uh, motor fuel and so on. And that hurts everybody, but it hurts the poor more than anyone else. That, by the way, is pretty much the entire reason why I got involved in all of this. As a little child in India, I witnessed real poverty uh, of, a, of a degree that the vast majority of the people in the Northern Hemisphere uh, of, of uh, the Western Hemisphere have never, ever seen, never dreamt of. And uh, I am just incensed at the notion that we should trap billions of people in extreme poverty uh, because we want to prevent a degree or two of uh, increase in global average surface temperature that happens primarily uh, in raising low temperatures, not high temperatures, when after all, <laughs> uh, cold snaps kill on average 20 times as many people per day as heat waves do. I, I think this is just unconscionable, and that's why I've been willing to dedicate a good part of my life to fighting this battle. Um, so, but, but I think, you know, as I said, most of the folks behind that kind of policy, I think really don't understand where it's going to lead, but I think there are some people who really do. There are some people in the environmental movement, including some of the leaders of, of some of the largest environmental activist organizations who really would like to see us de-industrialize the world. They see that as the only way to return man to harmony with nature. And uh, for them, it's fine to do this, even though to do it will mean that we cannot feed the human race that we have today. Most of them tend to agree that the optimal human population would be only about 300 to 500 million people, which means that we need to get rid of about 97% of us. Um, so you know, there are those. I would not uh, apply that motive to the vast majority of people on the other side of this issue from myself, because I think the vast majority just simply doesn't understand uh, either the scientific issues related to the to to climate change itself, or the economic and and uh, uh, engineering issues uh, related to energy, uh, to the production and and uh, distribution and use of energy. Yeah, there's a real. For a lot of people, I think that's correct. For a lot of people, they don't realize there's a lot of ignorance around this topic. But mm -hmm. there's a there's a serious religious fervor to a lot of this, especially for politicians on the left. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's reprehensible that they would sacrifice the world's poor, hundreds of millions, even billions of people, just to fulfill their their secular yeah. need to uh, to have a religion to feel like they're doing something. It's it's remarkable. Yeah. 
if I let, let me let me uh, build on your your reference to the Dutch farmer sure. situation, um, if I may. Um, of course, the uh, the Dutch government has adopted a, a goal of reducing uh, sulfur uh, sulfurous uh, uh, fertilizer use in Holland by I think it's fifty percent by twenty thirty. Uh, in Canada, the goal is 30% by 2030. Um, and uh, the, the farmers in the Netherlands, of course, have been protesting this. And we've all seen uh, footage of, of uh, you know, tractors lined up down the highways uh, trying to indicate their protest. Why would the farmers do this? Well, it's because... Uh, uh, Fertilizers uh, that use uh, sulfur dioxide are absolutely crucial to crop yields. Um, roughly 50% of the world's population depends on food that is raised using uh, fertilizers that are sulfur dioxide based. And um, roughly, uh, well, somewhere between 30 and 50% of the yield of those crops is attributable entirely to that fertilizer. So doing just some very quick and simple uh, math, uh, we, can, we can figure that uh, if we get rid of those fertilizers, we will get rid of, uh, well, I'm not going to do the math in my head right now, <laughs> but, but a pretty significant portion of crop yield around the world. That means we're going to starve a pretty significant portion of the human population. Um, again, the problem is that people, uh, we, we are so protected, we are so, uh, uh, what, shielded from the, the making of things that we don't understand how food gets on the table. We don't understand how how the car, the truck gets down the road, how the plane goes through the air. We don't understand how that electricity comes out of that socket in the wall to run our refrigerator and our, our, our laptop and uh, to charge our cell phone. We don't understand those things. And uh, getting a grasp of those would bring a lot more reality to many of us. Indeed, indeed. Well, I think that's uh, that's about most of the questions I had for you. Um, I'm sure we'll get a bunch of feedback on this, and, and right. people have other other questions. But uh, maybe we'll have you back in the future to yeah. discuss a few of those. Okay. Is there any uh, the closing thoughts you want to uh, give to people on um, you know, some of the, the the wisdom you've shared today, or if you want to plug your uh, organization again, yeah. feel free. <laughs> Well, uh, certainly I'd be glad to do the latter. Uh, uh, just invite people to come to Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. That's cornwallalliance.org. Uh, we, uh, we publish an email newsletter that comes out a couple times a week, sometimes three times. It's always educational. Uh, we have loads and loads of educational articles on our website and some major papers. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We have our uh, podcast created to to rain, and uh, uh, I would also not be doing my job as president and chairman of the board if I didn't remind people too that we are a nonprofit organization. We are supported entirely by uh, well, I'm sorry, almost entirely. We do get a little bit of money by selling books and DVDs but we're supported almost entirely by private you know, donations from individuals uh, around the uh, America and a uh, good many in Canada as well. So uh, we welcome that kind of support. You know, I, I guess my, uh, my well, uh, before I get to a closing thought, uh, let me just say this too. Uh, my comments today have been mostly on theological, ethical, and economic uh, lines. If you have me back, I, I'm hoping that we'll be able to include Dr. David Legates, who is our Director of Research and Education, recently retired from a long career teaching climatology at the University of Delaware and a couple of other universities before that. 
Uh, he is a world-class climate scientist, and, and he will be able to speak to the technical issues of, of climate science much better than I can do. Um, so where would I leave this? Um, I, I think that we as Christians should do all the scientific and economic and historical and, and political thinking that our non-Christian neighbors do. We should use all the same sources of information that they use, but we should use another source that they don't, and that's revelation, uh, the scriptures, the, the Bible itself. And so we should test all things, hold fast what is good, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. And we should do that by seeing how things measure up to the teachings of Scripture. If you think that an incredibly tiny change in atmospheric chemistry, increasing carbon dioxide from 28 thousandths of 1% to 56 thousandths of 1%, is going to throw the whole climate system into catastrophic existential threat <laughs> collapse. You have a tough time reconciling with that with an infinitely wise designer, an infinitely powerful creator, an infinitely faithful sustainer, who having made all things, saw them and behold, they were very good, and who made a promise to himself in Genesis 8, 22, that as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, uh, day and night will not cease, that he would sustain all of the cycles, uh, the natural cycles on which human life depends, uh, and who has told us repeatedly in Scripture that he has set the, the uh, sands as a boundary for the sea, that it cannot uh, go across over them uh, after the great flood, um, these sorts of things in Scripture should make us automatically very skeptical of claims that relatively small perturbations in natural systems are going to cause catastrophic harm, uh, irreversible harm. If we can see a Mount St. Helens explode uh, as a volcano and completely flatten and, and uh, consume thousands and thousands of square miles of forest all around it. And today you go back and all of that is beautiful forest again. We ought not to think that our puny contribution to atmospheric chemistry is going to cause an existential threat through climate change. Very good. <clears throat> well, that's a comforting message to, uh, to leave on. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, God, God bless in all of your work. I hope so. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.